Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll start today with a COVID update from the state's top medical executive, Dr. Natasha Bagazarian, who will tell us where we stand in Michigan as the Omicron variant begins to wane. We're going to ask about mask mandates and other protocols and everything else as we go forward. Then we're going to talk about the economy, which is booming by many measures. But how come Democrats who are in charge in Washington seem sheepish about claiming credit? It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. COVID cases are dropping pretty quickly across the country right now. And in fact, the rate of new infections is down almost two-thirds of what it was just a couple of weeks ago. That is the new reality with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's up, it's down, it is forcing us to change our lives and endure disruption, and then all of a sudden, it seems like it's under control again. The president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said last week that we are exiting the full-blown pandemic phase of the COVID-19 crisis and that we are edging toward this idea of an endemic, something that we just kind of endure that doesn't pose as much of a lethal threat as the pandemic will require us to do some things differently and, and be aware of the way that we're interacting with each other, but won't amount to the same kinds of disruptions that we've become used to over almost the past two years. So are we almost out of the Omicron wave that has sickened and killed so many people and disrupted our lives over the past couple of months? Or is this all going to be ramping up again? And maybe we're acting too quickly, letting our guard down. That is where we begin the conversation today. Where are we with the COVID-19 pandemic? What should we be doing? What should we be thinking about? And what is possibly coming next? Joining us to talk about all that is the state's chief medical executive, Dr. Natasha Bagdazarian. Dr. Bagdazarian, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on this morning. Mm -hmm. So let's start with where the numbers stand. Where are we with new infections and deaths in Michigan? And how does that compare to what's going on in the rest of the country? Well, I love coming on your show with good news. In fact, I think this is the first time I've been able to come on with some really <laughs> positive news. Yeah. Um, and all of our metrics are trending down. And not only are they trending down um, when we look at our you know, overall statewide metrics, but they're trending down in all of our areas. Um, so we've got new cases at um, 235 weekly cases per 100,000. Just a few weeks ago, we were over 1,400. Um, test positivity is at 11.5%. Um, that has also come down precipitously, looking really good. And, and of course, the, the best metric um, is our hospital capacity and the number of patients in the hospital with COVID. Um, so we are down to 12% of our hospital beds occupied by COVID patients. And we had been well over 22, 23% at the peak of our surge. So all of those metrics are coming down. They're coming down in all of our regions. Um, and it's, it's really positive news. Hmm. So that positive news is welcome, of course. But I think the question is whether whether we can, I guess, breathe a sigh of relief quite yet. I mean, you know, th this has happened before where things have gotten better after they were so bleak and something else would, would almost inevitably show up. So I, I want to get your read on how 
how aggressively we ought to be reacting to this to this good news right now. Well, I can share with you that I'm feeling really positive about this news. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that we have to keep in mind, and and I think one of the things um, that one of the messages that has gotten lost a little bit in translation is this move to endemicity and what it will look like. When we talk about an endemic state, we're really talking about not only a pathogen that's with us and circulating in our community, but something that is circulating on a more predictable level. So something that we can really predict, manage, expect, and have some control measures around. And with COVID, it's been fairly unpredictable up Mm -hmm. until now. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is entering into a phase where things are just more predictable, more controlled, and that we're not seeing the same level of uh, negative consequences, the same level of hospitalizations, damage to our infrastructure, strain on our hospital systems. And one of the things to really keep in mind is that this is not linear. This is not a straight line from pandemic to it's over. What we're actually talking about is having to take a few steps forward and then maybe take a step back Mm. and move forward. And again, maybe take a step back when another surge hits us. COVID is not gone. COVID-19 is not done with us. And we need to be able to think in a long-term way so that we can both message when it's time to take increased precautions and when things are risky, And also we need to be able to message to the public when it's okay to take a sigh of relief, when it's okay to breathe a little bit easier, when it's okay to take part in some of those activities that we've been holding off on. And I think that that is one of the messages that has become lost. It's not an all or nothing. It's not either we're in the pandemic or we're we're done with it. I think that what the public needs to understand is that this is going to be a little bit of a cycle for some time now. We just had a surge. So we, in in um, the infection prevention world, we talk about this as a response. Mm-hmm. So everything scaled up in response to this surge of cases. We were distributing testing supplies and therapeutics, and we had lots of messaging about masking and other mitigation strategies. And now that things are looking better and we're coming out of that surge, we go into a preparedness phase. And the preparedness phase means you can take a breath of relief. Things are a little bit better. Maybe do some of those things that you wanted to do for some time. There's less risk out there in the community. But we in public health will be watching and monitoring and looking forward to what's coming next. And then if we start seeing signals that something troubling is on the horizon, we in public health will enter into a readiness phase. We'll let the public know that we may be expecting a surge of cases. Maybe it'll be related to the weather. Maybe it'll be related to a new variant. Could we see new variants that are more refractory to therapeutics? Whatever it is, we will make a public health assessment and then indicate to the public, you know what? Another surge may be coming and now's the time to ramp everything up again. Mm. So I think that if we can, if we can message to the public that this is a cycle And there are times when we can relax and there are times where we may need to be a little bit more stringent. I think that is a better message than we're in the pandemic and then all of a sudden everything is um, is over. So I I do want to get to our callers. And and if you have a question for Dr. Natasha Bagdasarian, this is the time to call 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there. And uh, we can ask your questions that way. But before we get to listeners, Dr. Bagdasarian, I I want to talk about what we're hearing at the at the national level and in some cases at the local level based on what you just said. So we've got a lot of county health departments that are lifting mask mandates for schools and in other settings. That's also true here in Wayne County. Uh, And President Biden said this week that he thought this lifting of mask mandates is premature. So based on what you were just talking about, this shift perhaps to um, a less disruptive way to deal with with COVID. I I wonder what you make of the decision to lift those mandates now. 
Well, as you know, we have not had a statewide mask mandate in place for some time here in Michigan. Um, These decisions had been made on a local level. And one of the things that we're expecting to see is as the pandemic goes on um, and as we make this shift into more of an endemic state, we are less likely to see big problems at the state level. So big problems affecting us all at the same time. And as time goes on, we're more likely to see hotspots and outbreaks. And so I think making those decisions locally makes a lot of sense. Of course, there could be a new variant out there that makes us um, need to think about things on a broader level again. But as time goes on, I think the importance of making decisions locally and being able to react to what's happening on the ground, what's happening at a certain school that's having an outbreak, for example, um, what's happening in your county, I think that becomes really important. And I think what we're seeing with these local health departments is they're seeing cases are falling precipitously and um, they're reacting to the needs and wants of their communities. Um, which is, um, you know, I, I think their decision. Yeah. And and you don't feel as though there's an imperative anymore to deal with statewide mandates. I know that, that, that we've kind of gone back and forth uh, about that, but I wonder if the move by some counties to relax those protocols makes you think again about the possibility of, of some kind of statewide mandate. Well, again, I'll say that cases are coming down. Mm -hmm. So we're exiting this surge that we just had. And um, as the weather warms up and as people are recovering from Omicron, it should be a relative safer time for us in the state. Now, again, it's not an all or nothing. It doesn't mean, um, you know, we don't uh, we don't recommend taking these mitigation practices at all. But we do have tools now that we didn't have. Um, just over a year ago. We have a vaccine that is incredibly, or vaccines that are incredibly safe and effective at preventing severe outcomes and death. We have therapeutics. Um, So another monoclonal antibody was just approved. Um, So we've got two monoclonal antibodies that are effective against Omicron. We have Paxlovid, an oral therapeutic um, that significantly reduces um, risk of severe outcome and death. Um, we have tools in our toolkit. And I think it just means that when we look forward, we have to be able to utilize all of these tools. Masks, social distancing, ventilation, that's one part of this. But as we look at this cycle and as we look at cases coming down, we'll need to keep preparing for what's coming next. We'll need to be ready if we see another variant on the horizon, and then we need to be able to respond in a a very swift and efficient way. And whether that's locally or statewide, I think it really depends on what comes next. Mm, Yeah. Okay. uh, I want to get to some of our listeners here. We've got a number of phone calls and some social media comments. Let's start with Liz in Garden City. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. My question is regard to the testing, uh, the accuracy of the testing, uh, in particular the PCR tests. I had COVID uh, last week. I had, you know, just full-on symptoms. I knew I had it. So I went to the health department screening, and first they did an antigen test, and I said I was really hoping for a PCR. So they did both, and the antigen came back positive, and the PCR came back negative. Oh, wow. I, I knew I had it. So I went to U of M a couple of days later just to do a second PCR because I wanted it for health insurance purposes. And it came back negative. So I did a little research and I found that some of the PCRs aren't, they for, you know, reasons of the way the, the new variant is, they mm. don't detect. They don't pick it up. Yeah. Right. So I'm concerned that these dropping numbers are not a reflection of dropping cases. They're uh, a reflection of dropping. Of the tests that people are taking. Yeah, Exactly. Liz, Liz I really appreciate the call and you raising that point. Um, uh, Dr. Bagdazarian, what are we to make of, uh, of that? Is this perhaps about tests that don't pick up this variant and not as much about cases actually going down? 
Um, I don't think so, no. Um, and I just want to say to Liz, I'm sorry that you went through that. I'm sorry that you were sick and that you had this bad experience. Um, in general, PCR is extremely sensitive. Um, and the PCRs that we have available and around the state are still very good at detecting even Omicron. There were a couple of PCR tests where there were some issues. The FDA um, issued an alert and we worked with our partners across the state to make sure those platforms were not being used. So this should not be an issue of you know, a wrong PCR platform being used. With any test type, the, the test is really only as good as the sample. So if you were early in your disease and maybe not shedding a lot of virus, or if the sample just simply didn't collect enough specimen, um, you know, we are, we're talking about, um, you know, a, a swab that can be a little bit uncomfortable. And, and, and if, if we're too gentle, I'll say with the swab, mm -hmm. um, sometimes we don't get the correct amount of sample on that swab. So it's hard to say what specifically went wrong, but this is not an issue with PCR. Mm. And also our numbers, we look at both PCR numbers as well as antigen tests that are being performed on site. We, of course, don't have reports of at-home antigen tests, but we do have our um, antigen tests that are being done in um, clinics and doctor's offices and testing sites. And all of those numbers are coming down and they're coming down everywhere in a really big way. So I think this was just the way that Omicron um, transmitted and, and the way that the epidemiology of Omicron um, resulted in a very high peak and then a steady decline. And we've seen that not just here, but elsewhere in the country and elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Liz, great question. And uh, I do hope that you're feeling better. Uh, I know, I know a lot of people who've had a, a rough time with COVID, even when they are vaccinated and boosted, uh, sometimes it just uh, it just really really catches up to you. So uh, I hope you are feeling better. Let's go to Martha in Ortonville. Martha, what's on your mind? Yes, um, it, a year ago, right now, that we had all the states had finally gotten below high risk red, mm -hmm. and then exactly two weeks after the Super Bowl, Michigan proceeded to stop going down and we turned around and headed way fast way up and we became the first state to go back in high risk red and we were we were claiming 10% of the new cases daily mm -hmm. for several weeks we have just left the super bowl i have heard people talking about the super bowl parties yes we do have um vaccinations etc supposedly helping us but on June 22nd, when they lifted the regs and you could go eat in restaurants again, Michigan was averaging 151 new cases a day. We are now averaging 3,600, and we're proud of that because it's way down from where we were three weeks ago. Yeah. But do we want to – there are only four states that are below high-risk red right now, and we certainly are not one of them. Right. Martha, I, I'm really glad you called and, and put this in that in that context. I don't mean to cut you off, but I know that Dr. Bagdarzarian is going to have to go in just a little bit, and I do want to get her to – to answer your question, which I think is a is a good one, are we acting too quickly? We've seen this before, where things go in a positive direction, and then we relax, and something else comes up, and and then we're in a world of hurt again. Is that is that a danger here, Doctor Bagdasarian? Well, excellent question from Martha, and really appreciate all the research that you've been doing and, and looking back at our cases. Um, it's really good to see people who are interested in how this pandemic is progressing. Um, we never can say with certainty what's going to happen next. But in addition um, to the tools, and addition to in addition to having all of these new tools, um, one of the things that we have in a sense in our favor right now is that we are just recovering from this very high Omicron surge that came on the back of a very high Delta surge. So we are likely just overall, even in people who are not vaccinated, we're likely to have higher levels of um, immunity just as a population right now. And the way that this is declining is certainly reassuring. And, and of course, we never know what's coming next. But one of the ways that I want to reframe the risk and what could happen next is it's not so much just about cases anymore. 
we're really trying to prevent severe outcomes. So it's not like the very early days of, of COVID where we were saying, you know, gosh, maybe we could just stop this from becoming entrenched. Maybe we could eliminate this. Maybe we could eradicate this. We're not in that in that um, mentality anymore. COVID is going to be with us for some time. And what we're really trying to do is adhere to the following guiding principles. Number one, we want to prevent death and severe outcomes. Number two, we want to protect our healthcare capacity, make sure that everyone from hospitals to long-term care and first responders have the bandwidth to provide medical care. And then number three, we want to keep our vital infrastructure functioning safely. So places like schools um, and, and corrections, so keep that infrastructure open. And it's not just about cases anymore. So the same number of cases this year, it means something different than that same level of cases last year because um, we have a little bit of natural immunity from this very recent surge we had. Mm -hmm. We have um, a high number of our over 65 population immunized. And then we've got therapeutics to prevent some of those severe outcomes. So while we want to do everything to keep our community safe, to keep our state safe, I think we need to reframe a little bit the way we're looking at these metrics. So it's not so much about percent positivity and cases anymore. We, of course, still look at them. But what I'm really looking at is what's happening in the hospitals, what's happening with pediatric hospitalization, um, what is happening with our vaccination rates. One of the areas where we continue to struggle is vaccine uptake in our younger age groups. So vaccine uptake has not been great in our 30-year-olds or 20-year-olds or our pediatric patients. So what's happening with vaccination rates? And then as I forecast and look at what's coming next, I'm also very interested in what is the new variant that's on the horizon. What could affect us next? Could it be a variant that causes more mortality? Could it be a variant that is refractory to some of our therapeutics? So while the metrics that we've looked at and the number of cases are very important, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that it meant a year ago. Yeah, that's a really that's a really important point, too, that that as we get deeper into this entire uh, situation and issue, it, it changes because we get better at treating it. We get better at uh, making sure people are vaccinated uh, and and the results are, are different. Quickly before I have to let you go, Dr. Bagdazarian, I wonder if one of the things you might be worried about is the BA2 Omicron subvariant. Uh, is, is that something that could be the next thing that that causes us to, to, to really change the way that we're dealing with this? Well, when I talk about us entering into this preparedness phase, um, watching for new subvariants and variants, that's one of the things that we're doing. And we're monitoring the situation very closely. So that means not only looking at what's happening with our sequencing in the state, but looking at what's happening with sequencing data from other states, looking at our wastewater um, data, looking at what's happening in other countries. And I think that as we try to reestablish this trust with the public moving forward, um, one of the things that we really need to work on is allowing the citizens of Michigan to take a deep breath and to be able to go about their day-to-day -day activities, knowing that public health is monitoring for those things. And if we foresee a problem, we will signal that. Um, you know, I think that it's been very hard for people to live with this heightened sense of fear for over two years now, yes. um, or, or just about two years. I think that we need to be able to allow people to take a breather and, um, and let down their guard a little bit, but with the understanding that public health is still keeping an eye on all of these factors and that we may, we may need to go back into a response phase. Yeah. Okay, uh, Dr. Natasha Bagdazarian, it's really wonderful that we get to, to have you come on the program here and share all of the things you're thinking and, and all the things you know with our listeners. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, we are going to talk about the economy, the booming economy by many measures, and why Democrats are a little sheepish about taking credit for that booming economy. Writer Zachary Carter has an article out about that. He's going to join us next to discuss it. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. America is not an easy place for a lot of people to live right now. The pandemic, though fading, is still going on. And inflation is quite high, which is causing prices to rise everywhere. But there's a rosier perspective to what's happening now, and that includes the fact that the economy is, in fact, booming. Unemployment is really low, and low-wage workers have more power than they've had in decades. What's more, our GDP is increasing. The stock market is really strong, and child poverty has been cut in half by President Joe Biden's recent child tax credit expansion. But for all that good news, you don't really hear Democrats taking credit for this booming economy as they move into the midterms. You don't really see the president out crowing about all the money that is in people's pockets now that wasn't just a few years ago before he was president. The question is why? What's going on in our politics and our economy that explains this unwillingness to take credit for the economic things that are going well right now? Writer and author Zachary Carter recently wrote a piece about this in The Atlantic, and he joins us now to talk about this democratic sheepishness when it comes to the economy. Zachary Carter, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start here. What really is going on in the economy? Why is it, as you say, the best labor market in half a century? Well, there's a lot of good news in the economy if uh, if you're looking at things other than um, the inflation prints. And really, the inflation data for folks at the bottom third of the income distribution is really pretty sanguine. Um, real wages are up for people in the bottom third of the income distribution um, over the past year. And they're up for just about everybody, uh, you know, in, if you take it, you know, sort of average across the entire income spectrum over the course of the pandemic. The, the months where we've seen the price increases are, are in the last six months, and they appear to be uh, eating away at, they appear to be rising faster than wages for people above the bottom third of the income distribution. So the real salient uh, point about this recovery compared to the recovery from the financial crisis is that folks at the bottom have done much better in this recovery, much faster than they did in the recovery from the 2008 financial crisis. It took 10 years after the last crash to get where we are today with unemployment at 4%. It's taken us you know, a little less than two years to get to 4% unemployment since the onset of the pandemic. And in many respects, uh, this crisis was worse. I mean, we had businesses just being shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, even when businesses don't shut down in, in, say, the Omicron wave by some sort of you know, uh, local or, or federal government uh, regulatory policy, people just don't do as much commercial activity when the pandemic is really raging. And of course, a lot of people are sick and dying. Uh, so this, is, this has been a really bad economic disaster. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at the menu of, of, of options for what the economy, the, the path where the economy could have gone in March of 2020, almost every path seemed much worse, not only worse, but much worse than the path that we have, we have actually taken. And I think the real difference there is that the government spent a lot more money this time around. Um, than it spent after the 2008 crash. And it spent that money on ordinary families, more of that money on, on ordinary families. Um, so things like the child tax credit that you mentioned in your introduction there, you know, I think people forget uh, inflation is real. It's a, it's a total drag. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to <laughs> underplay that it's, that it's a significant thing. Um, but if you look at where the economy was a year ago, 15% of American parents were reporting that their children were going hungry in the United States one year ago. Uh, that's really, really bad. And I think Democrats have been reluctant to boast about the things that are going well in this economy because overall the national mood is, is so sour. Part of that, I, I'm sure, is, is inflation. But also the pandemic hasn't gone away. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the pandemic itself is something that manufactures you know, a lot of misery and despair. But also most of the actions that can be taken to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 are also rather unpleasant. You know, the social isolation, all, all the rest, mm-hmm. we're all familiar with after two years of this. Um, so 
I think there is uh, there's sort of a reluctance to claim credit for any aspect of the economy that seems to be going well because the overall national mood is so sour. Uh, and and you know, political strategists, you know, make their living studying this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm not a political strategist, but uh, you know, I, it seems understandable to me why people are hesitant about that. But I do think intellectually, at least, we should understand what has actually taken place over the past couple of years. And, and understand it as, as a success. I mean, inflation-adjusted GDP, economic growth, even taking into account the hardships of inflation, was 5.7% last year. We haven't had real GDP growth like that since 1984. Hmm. And the last time before that was the Johnson administration. So this is a, a, a really impressive success story for the economy in a lot of respects. But, uh, you know, it, it is also the case that we're living through some pretty difficult times. Yeah. So so let's talk about the political dimension of this. Republicans are feasting on this idea of inflation as the signature dynamic in the current economy. And they are saying the, the, the inflation is caused by the policies that uh, President Joe Biden has put in place. That's their job, right? They're the opposition. They're supposed to to, to focus on what's negative. If if they want to get voters to vote for them instead of for the the party in power uh, this November, but the other side of that equation normally is that the other party, the Democrats, would be out saying, "Well, hold on a second. Uh, yeah, inflation's bad, but." Look at all these other things, and there is a reason that inflation is as bad as it is. We expect that it'll it'll take care of itself over time. I don't hear that other side of the narrative, uh, and this is the, the 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 point that you make in your piece as well. Democrats aren't out taking credit for the things that are going well in the economy. So why is that true? I think I think there's an intellectual problem at. at uh, embedded in all of this. I, I don't know if it's <laughs> the chief cause here or whether, uh, you know, more hard-nosed uh, political calculations are are at, at stake but um, or in play. But, I, you know, I, I think there's been a conception of the right way to manage inflation for uh, several decades, really since Paul Volcker became chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1980s. And in this conception, basically, inflation is is what happens when there is too much demand in the economy when people, ordinary families, really have it too good. Um, so wages are too high, and this is causing, uh, you know, merchants to bid up prices. Um, and, and so this excess of good times for ordinary families is uh, creating inflation and, and ultimately eating away at what look like really positive uh, wage gains. And I think in the pandemic, you know, it, 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 it seems plausible to say that some of the inflation we've seen over the past year or so is due to uh, is due to high levels of aggregate demand. We are running a very hot economy, but it is obviously the case that inflation is an international problem, and it is also obviously the case that the inflation is a product of the pandemic and the complexities associated with reopening the global economy, not just the national economy. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's a mismatch between the supply of goods and services that we can uh, deliver and the amount of demand of the economy. And the supply side of that is what people are talking about when they talk about all these supply chain disruptions, when they talk about bottlenecks in key sectors like, say, microchips and the rest. And basically, that is all a result of underinvestment in the economy over the last 25 years. Essentially, because we've run the economy too cool, because there hasn't been enough demand in the economy, we have managed price increases by basically holding back on worker paychecks very aggressively. Um, we haven't invested in all the resiliency and, and sort of um, uh, we haven't taken steps to make sure that goods can be delivered after a disruption like, like the pandemic. So the way out of this uh, is actually more government spending, believe it or not. And absent more government spending, some, some set of incentives to create uh, more investment coming from the private sector. And what we've actually seen over the past two years is uh, relative to the last quarter century, record levels of investment in both the public and private sectors. That's the type of stuff that long-term helps you deal with inflation. The political problem for Democrats is that they can't pass any more legislation right now so long as Kristen Sinema and uh, Joe Manchin are in the Senate. Uh, for whatever reason, the two of them have decided that more government spending is bad and uh, have basically taken a really powerful longer-term inflation-fighting tool away 
from uh, from the Biden administration, from Congress, uh, from from policymakers. Even even the Fed is sort of uh, which has been open to I think a more flexible approach to inflation management this time around um, is is finding it, itself with its back against the wall because they don't have a willing and capable partner in Congress at this stage. So I think because the political realities in the Senate are so grim, Democrats are reluctant to talk about alternative ways of dealing with inflation because that will raise the expectation that they are supposed to actually deliver something. And with the way the Senate is currently structured, it doesn't seem obvious that they can do that. Okay, uh, we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Zachary Carter, author of the piece, The Economy is Good, actually, in the Atlantic. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. How's the economy working for you right now? Do you think it's really great? Is it booming? Or are you just suffering from sticker shock everywhere you go? Everything seeming like it's much more expensive than it was before Joe Biden was president. Do you think Democrats should be taking credit for this economy as we get ready for the midterm elections in November? Or do you think they're right to kind of put their heads in the sand and not say very much about what's going on because of things like inflation. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, to Facebook or Twitter, to put comments there, and we can include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Zachary D. Carter. He's the author of a piece titled, The Economy is Good, Actually, in the Atlantic. We're talking about what's going on in the economy right now, the good and the bad, and why Democrats who face a midterm election where they will try to keep control of both houses of Congress uh, this fall, why are they not talking? about the good things in the economy. Why don't you see them out bragging about the boom in GDP, in the stock market, uh, in other things that really do make a difference in Americans' lives and in their pocketbooks? It seems that they're allowing Republicans to allow inflation, uh, which is at a 40-year high, at least, uh, to dominate the, the discussion instead. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's start with Mike in Ann Arbor. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. Yeah, you know, I, I find it amazing that the Democrats are not talking about the fact that Republicans and their policies are what is causing inflation. I think uh, the um, you know the protests uh, regarding uh, the vaccine um, issues around the Ambassador Bridge, you know, U.S. Uh, folks are involved in that too. That is a clear example of uh, activities that are driving inflation. The, the inability to move automobile parts back and forth. Uh, it's creating, you know, a, a, a impacting the supply of the goods. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that's driving up prices. And I think uh, the same thing could be said for the uh, vaccine hesitancy problems that uh, have been occurring all throughout the pandemic. It's really impacted the ability for restaurants to open, for example. It's impacted all kinds of, of things uh, associated with the supply chain. So I would, I would turn this on them. I mean, I, I really think... <laughs> The Republicans' policies and what they're supporting uh, is the, one of the main drivers in inflation. Yeah. And I, also, if you look at it, I mean, the prices for gasoline are not that high. Adjusted for inflation, they're still like way below where they were in the 80s. So oh, sure. I don't know really what they're talking about. Well, I think it's that it's that they're higher than they were a year or two ago. I mean. I think you're you're right that they're nothing like they were when when we had real oil crises driving, um, you know, driving gasoline prices. But but you know, as somebody who's you know filling up like everybody else, I I noticed the bigger numbers 
uh, when I'm at the at the gas station right now. So, so Zach Carter, I want to I wonder if you can talk about the connection between Republican policies, which have which have really pushed back against um, you know vaccine mandates as well as other. Uh, kinds of COVID protocols and the the extent to which that is driving inflation and whether I guess that's a, a good narrative through line for Democrats to, to, to jump on in advance of November. Well, I'm a bit more reluctant to say that it's Republican policies that have resulted in uh, the inflation boom than the collar because I think the response to the pandemic was pretty bipartisan. So especially going back to, to March of 2020, you know, the Trump administration, um, Jerome Powell, who was a former private equity magnate at the Federal Reserve, um, a lot of people involved in the uh, in the Republican administration were were OK with higher levels of aggregate demand and and even, you know, higher payments to families as a way of getting out of the pandemic. Now, that Republican enthusiasm for that stuff dried up really quickly and mm-hmm. has been very inconsistent over time. Um, but I do think it's correct to say that the pandemic there and, and events associated with the pandemic are what are really responsible for, for the price increases. If you look at inflation in a sort of category by category um, way, instead of just looking at you know, averages of prices across the entire economy, it's pretty clear that there are four categories that are really doing all of the work in terms of uh, you know, the difference in prices this year versus the year before. You see an increase in, in housing rents. An increase in energy prices. You guys were just talking about gas. Um, you see slightly lower increases in, um, in, in food prices. And then there's one other category that I'm forgetting. But all of this stuff is, uh, is tied. Oh, sorry, used cars. Um, like the car market is really crazy. Mm-hmm. If you bought a car in the last year and a half or so, um, it's, it's been really hard on you. Um, so what that means is that the impact of inflation is really uneven. So if you needed a car, uh, or if you live in one of these cities where rent is really going through the roof, then inflation's been really, really hard for you. Um, whereas if you don't live in one of those cities where the housing market's going wild and you didn't need to buy a car, then, you know, food prices are up and that's a drag. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, there, there isn't a, a sort of uh, household-wide decline in, in standard of living that's coming from, from the inflation. So um, what that also tells you is that if you can find a way to get housing, cars, energy, and food under control, then you've pretty much dealt taking care of the problem. Sure. Now, that's a lot of different categories because food takes up so many different things. Um, but it's easy to imagine an approach to fighting inflation that focuses on the prices that are going up and not the total level of aggregate demand in the economy, not trying to regulate inflation by directly regulating consumer paychecks. I mean, basically the way the Fed fights inflation with raising interest rates. Um, the story there is that it, it can... Uh, bring inflation down by raising interest rates. But the way it does that is by locking people out of the labor market and, and lowering wages. Yeah. So to me, that seems like a pretty backward way of, of doing things, um, or at, le- at the very least, a, a, an imperfect tool. Uh, and I think part of the reluctance from Democrats to, to sort of draw a line here is that they're, they're intellectually confused about this. Um, they, don't, they don't study inflation. They just hear about it from their constituents. They're not economists. And to be clear, you know, the economic consensus on a lot of these things has been in flux really since the 2008 financial crisis. If you remember, before 2008, the sort of um, hegemonic view among economists who were politically influential was that government spending is really bad. Um, Hyperinflation, certainly high levels of inflation, potentially hyperinflation were on the table after 2008 because the, the national debt was so bad. And what we've seen over the past you know, 12 or 13 years, is that all of those fears about debt were, were at, at best, wildly overstated, um, at worst, just completely wrong. And so the economics profession has been rethinking a lot of its priors on how this stuff actually works. And if the economics profession is still sort of in flux or in transition, um, certainly Democratic Party politicians are going to be behind the curve a bit. Um, but the biggest problem for Democrats, I mean, I think the reason they're not pointing at Republicans and saying it's all your fault is because they don't really have a way of uh, pursuing solutions through the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Joe Biden has quite a few tools on the table um, that are available to him that he can use to fight inflation through the uh, administrative executive branch, uh, but they'll take time. And, uh, and frankly, it's not obvious that everybody in the Biden administration um, is 
is thinking about inflation in this particular way. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough political spot. If, if there were a super easy solution, I'm sure Democrats would have pursued it a long time ago. <laughs> They'd have figured that um, out, right? <laughs> but it is still the case that as a result, you know, a lot of really good news in the economy is going basically uncovered because the Democrats aren't going out and taking credit for it. You know, the way political media works, uh, journalists are reluctant to go out and say, hey, this good thing is happening or this bad thing is happening if they can't put it in the phrasing of, uh, you know, a person in power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, really appreciate uh, the call, Mike, and, and the comments. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, what's on your mind? A lot of this conversation has brought to mind the early days of World War II, when, frankly, the U.S. was on the back foot, starting with Pearl Harbor. Uh, President Roosevelt recognized that. He recognized we're, we're being hurt, they're disappointments. But he always highlighted the long-term trends are with us. There are good things happening that the public doesn't see, and mm. we've got to bring those to the attention of the public, and we're going we're gonna to win. And the, the Democrats, and I'm speaking as a person who in early part of his life was a public Democrat, seemingly have forgotten that lesson that you've, you've got to recognize things aren't going well, but you also have to identify where the trends are with you and per- persuade the public that if they're patient, things will work out in yeah. the end. Yeah. Ed, uh, Ed I, love that. I love that comment, and I love the, the idea of putting this in some historical perspective, which I think is really important when you're talking about the economy. Quickly, I want to go to Hunter in Detroit, who's got a really interesting point as well. Hunter, go ahead. Yeah, actually, I have two points. Uh, one, that, that uh, the marketplace the other night, they said that corporate profits were up, were way up compared to the previous year. Mm-hmm. So one another driver of inflation is just plain old gouging and greed. And, and is, the other point was that Democrats might remind people that the one thing that's really going to bring inflation under control would be a recession. And so they should be glad that the economy's growing. Hmm. Uh, Hunter, both really interesting points. Um, I'm glad you called. Uh, Zachary Carter, respond to both what Ed is saying and what Hunter's saying. We've got about uh, two and a half minutes left in the in the program. Yeah, I, I think the point that, you know, the, the, <laughs> the simplest way to control inflation is to cause a recession is, is a, a useful one because mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't think the Fed is trying to make GDP growth go negative, you know, which would be sort of the formal definition that economists use for a recession. But the way monetary policy works, by, by raising interest rates, um, you are going after the labor market. You, you are going to limit inflation by limiting paychecks. That's, that's the mechanism. Um, and if there are no better tools available I, you know, under certain circumstances, it's, you, know, you can see um, how that could be uh, a, a necessary or sort of, you know, best of bad options uh, uh, tool to, to pursue. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence about the idea that the inflation will just go away in, in time. I, I, I think um, even though I credit the, the pandemic and the, the complexities associated with reopening the economy with the inflation, I think it's very obvious that this is the primary driver here, if not the exclusive driver. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 I, I'm reluctant to say that it's going to be temporary because the pandemic doesn't go away. Um, you know, it's been two years. And even if even if all of the you know, mask mandates and uh, vaccine policies, et cetera, are, are eliminated, repealed tomorrow, uh, people are still going to be reluctant to leave their homes during, uh, you know, a, another variant wave. Um, people are going to people have accustomed themselves to different levels of consumption over the past two years. Um, they're just individual household habits that, that are different. Um, and so long as the pandemic is hanging around, I think it's going to be tough to, to restart a lot of these supply chains. So I do think we're living in a situation where inflation is going to be one of those annoying things that you have to manage sort of on a case-by-case basis, uh, you know, quarter by quarter and year by year um, as, as we get more investment into the economy so that the economy is capable of, uh, of, of doing what we want it to do. And to be clear, you know, we, we do see a lot of signs that this, these high levels of aggregate demand 
um, fueled by low interest rates and by, uh, by a lot of deficit spending in the United States, are in fact resulting in a lot more economic activity mm-hmm. of the kind that, that economists have been calling for for decades. I mean, we, have, we are seeing a record level of reshoring or onshoring activity where jobs that went overseas a few decades ago are coming back coming to the United back, States because yeah. companies want to invest in the resiliency of their supply chain. So we see Intel is now building semiconductors in Ohio. Samsung is building them in Texas. Toyota has a new car battery factory in North Carolina. GM is increasing production in Michigan by as much as $4 billion. There are new textile factories in Georgia. Uh, Micron is going to be making some memory chips somewhere in the United States. This stuff is happening all over the country, and this, this new level of manufacturing activity is creating new sort of um, micro-economies in real estate as, uh, as people look to buy warehouse space and office space for all the jobs that are going to be created to support people working in these factories. Yeah. So, you know, these people are going to need insurance, and they're going to need warehouses for the goods that are made and, and all the rest. Um, that's the kind of activity you want to see. Um, good news leading to more good news in the economy. Um, and I think if, we, if you choke off demand in order to, to get inflation down, you risk uh, upsetting a lot of that activity, which is, is in the long-term interest of a healthier yeah, economy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, Zach Carter, author of The Economy is Good, actually, in the Atlantic. It was great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Professor Ruben Miller about his new book, Halfway Home, about the difficulties of integrating into normal life after being incarcerated. This is 1019 WDATFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.